The Sermon on the Mount is the pinnacle of preaching from the prince of preachers himself, Jesus Christ. And those who heard that marvelous sermon marveled at the authoritative treatise of the Savior. And those who have studied it since, if open and receptive to its teachings, have been truly transformed by applying this teaching to their lives. Tonight we continue our journey through this masterpiece from the Master Teacher as we examine two very powerful verses, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And in these verses, reading from the New King James, Jesus says, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. There's no question that we need to examine these verses very carefully, as well as all other teaching in the New Testament on this subject, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And as we do, we need to be completely open-minded, realize that it is our responsibility to accept what the Scriptures teach, make sure we are teaching what the Scriptures teach, and that we apply it to our lives. Divorce is far more prevalent in our society today than in years past. There's no question of that. And because of an increasing number of unscriptural marriages, there are some who are going to the Scriptures to try to justify these unscriptural relationships rather than teaching people to repent as the Bible instructs. I may have mentioned that at years ago I was in a gospel meeting up in Vermilion, Ohio, and visiting in the home there or staying in the home of the preacher there, and he was showing me a book that had been written by some brother on this subject who in the preface of the book basically said because of the increased number, increasing number of, of divorces in our society today, it is time for us to restudy the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Well, no, we don't need to restudy it. We just need to apply what has been studied and what faithful gospel preachers for years and years have been preaching on this subject. And I realize that there are congregations, tragically, where the sermon I am preaching tonight would not be preached and will not be preached because they will simply not deal with what the Bible teaches on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But obviously, every gospel preacher has an obligation to preach the whole counsel of God, to do it compassionately and lovingly, but to do it without compromise. There is an easy way out of this marriage divorce, remarriage dilemma that we find ourselves in increasingly in society today. And that easy way out is to just simply observe the Passover, as the expression goes, when it comes to dealing with, with these passages. But God doesn't give us that 
right to observe the Passover, as it were, and passing over any part of his word. And so, as we come to these verses in Matthew 5, as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we dare not skip over them or take them lightly, but study them carefully, honestly, and openly, and apply them to our lives. And sometimes that application can be very, very difficult, depending upon situations in which people find themselves today. But doing God's will is paramount to any, anything, any relationship, anyone in this life. You know, in Matthew 19, 12, in another passage in which this subject is discussed by our Lord, in verse 12, Jesus said, Some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And so we must never lose sight of the fact that saving our soul is more important than anything or anyone on this earth. Now, let's look at Matthew 5, 31 and 32 in light of other teaching in the New Testament on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. First of all, what does Jesus mean by divorce, the word divorce here, when he says, whoever divorces his wife? He means just what he says. He means divorce. That is, those who obtain a legal divorce according to the legal requirements of the land. That's how he obviously uses this word. One who does so is divorced. According to the law of the land, he's divorced. He is no longer married as the law views it. He has put away his spouse. He has met the requirement of the law, and he is now divorced. He is no longer married. But someone says, well, if he has not obtained a divorce for a scriptural reason, is he not still married? The answer is no, not in the sense in which Jesus uses this term here and elsewhere, and that's important for us to realize. He may be unscripturally divorced, and that's a distinct possibility, and tragically it is a reality in far too many cases, but he is divorced whether it is an unscriptural divorce or a scriptural divorce. A divorce has occurred in terms of the law of the land. By the same token, on the other hand, a person may be scripturally married or a person may be unscripturally married. But he has entered into a marriage nonetheless in meeting the requirements of the law of the land and he is either scripturally married or he is unscripturally married. I believe it is far more accurate to think of the matter in this way that I've just described than to use terms like married in God's eyes, or divorced in God's eyes. If he is divorced unscripturally, God doesn't approve the divorce, but the divorce has occurred. He's not still married, and I prefer that versus married in God's eyes or divorced in God's eyes. Now, with that in mind, how does God look upon divorce? We don't have to speculate. Go back to Malachi 2. And verse 16, and that verse establishes a principle that has never changed, and it never will change. Here it is, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, 
Take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Now here in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, Jesus establishes the only grounds for divorce with God's approval. And that is when the innocent party, the innocent party divorces the spouse who is guilty of fornication. Or as the New King James renders it, sexual immorality. Fornication as the King James renders it. And what is clear in this passage is that the one who divorces his mate for any reason other than fornication causes the divorced person to commit adultery when that person enters into another marriage, an unscriptural marriage. And so the only exception that the scripture ever gives is sexual immorality, as the New King James translates it, or fornication. The passage does not allow divorce for mental cruelty. The passage does not allow divorce for physical cruelty or for any other reason other than fornication. But what is fornication or sexual immorality? It is a much broader term than adultery. Adultery adultery refers to an illicit sexual relationship between two people, one of whom is married. But fornication, porneia, the Greek term, is a broader term referring to illicit sexual relations, illicit sexual intercourse of any kind, which would include homosexuality, it would include bestiality, any form of illicit sexual intercourse. It's a broader term than moikeia, the word for adultery. Now, while Jesus does not demand that divorce occur where fornication is involved, he doesn't demand it, but he does allow the innocent party in such a situation to put away the guilty party. And the innocent party may enter into another marriage with God's approval. The innocent party who puts away the guilty party, the party guilty of fornication, that innocent party may enter into another marriage with God's approval, as long as the one the innocent party marries is eligible to marry in God's sight, obviously. But the guilty party may not remarry. And these facts become evident from another passage that we'll look at in a few moments on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and that's Matthew 19, beginning at verse 1. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But what should be clear to us from this passage that we're studying from the Great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 31 and 32, is that God does not approve divorce for any reason other than fornication, sexual immorality. Now, the final authority on this is not what some man has said, but it does help at times to recognize what faithful gospel preachers and good Bible students have said. The late J.W. McGarvey, for example, said the law, meaning Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, the law of Moses he's talking about, permitted the husband to put away the wife when he found, quote, some unseemly thing in her. Unquote. But Jesus here, Brother McGarvey goes on, says, limits the right of divorce to cases of unchastity. And if there be a divorce on any other ground, neither the man nor the woman can marry again without committing adultery. 
Such is Jesus' modification of the Old Testament law, and in no part of the New Testament is there any relaxation as to the law here set forth. That's McGarvey from his fourfold gospel, page 242. In his commentary on Matthew and Mark, McGarvey writes, quote, It is perfectly clear that Jesus here prohibits divorce except for the single cause of fornication. In no part of the New Testament is there any relaxation of the law here given. Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 15 contains no such relaxation but merely furnishes directions for a Christian woman who, contrary to the law here given, is abandoned by her heathen husband. She's not bound to stay with him, but she cannot divorce him. But she's not bound to, to give up Christ in order to save her marriage. That's what 1 Corinthians 7, in that context, deals with. If we see what the late H. Leo Bowles wrote on it, Brother Bowles said he is clear on this point, Jesus that is. He lays down his teaching here with entire precision. He admits but one valid ground for divorce, namely fornication. Whoever puts away his wife for any other reason than this causes her to commit adultery because he tempts her to marry again. Jesus assumes that the pretended divorce goes for nothing and that marrying again involves adultery. Not only does she become an adulteress, but whoever shall marry her becomes an adulterer. A divorce for reasons other than the only legitimate one involves the sin of adultery and all the parties implicated. The husband who puts away his wife uh, puts his wife away and in the wife herself and in the man who marries her. The language of Jesus on the subject of adultery and divorce is plain. Brother Bowles goes on, I see nothing difficult to understand in it. I cannot write a plainer sentence than the one that says that everyone that putteth away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, maketh her an adulteress, and whoever, whosoever shall marry her when she is put away, committeth adultery. Brother Bowles says, every man or woman that has separated from a husband or wife, save for the cause of fornication and is living with another, is living in adultery. The law is positive and clear and no reasoning of man, whether preacher or not, can change it. He says, I do not see what more can be said on that point. Now let's ask this question. Why, why would a man be guilty of causing his wife to commit adultery if he puts her away for incompatibility. If he puts his wife away for incompatibility, how can he, how can he be guilty of causing her to commit adultery? Well, Brother Guy in Woods, the late Guy in Woods, answered that very well in his Questions and Answers, Volume 2, on page 198 and 199. He said, quote, The Lord's words, it hath been said, are an allusion to the law of Moses, which had a statute recognizing a bill of divorcement. That's Deuteronomy 24.1. It should be carefully observed that this liberty was suffered because of the hardness of heart that then characteristic of the people of Israel. Neither God nor Moses sanctioned divorce nor originated the decree. The affirmation of the existence of the bill, the bill of divorcement, was made and the provision for it for the reason assigned, noted, such was not part of God's plan from the beginning, Matthew 19, 1 through 9, and was clearly a temporary device for the protection 
of women. Brother Woods goes on, It was by our Lord repealed. A man is guilty of causing his wife to commit adultery if he puts her away for incompatibility because, one, it is not a ground for putting a wife away. And two, in unjustly doing so, he forces her into a situation where she will be tempted to contract another marriage which she has no right to do. Now that last comment from Brother Woods leads us to the discussion of the bill of divorcement that Jesus mentions in the beginning of Matthew 5, 31. Some would ask, as did the Pharisees in Matthew 19, why did Moses allow that divorce? Why did he allow that certificate of divorce month under the old law? Well, Brother Woods has answered the question in the comment we've just read. It's the answer that Jesus gave the Pharisees in Matthew 19, beginning at verse 1. So let's go there to Matthew 19 and look at verses 1 through 9. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now the question that the Pharisees asked was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? The answer Jesus gives is no, it is not, verses 4 through 6. And the Pharisees clearly understood the answer from the Lord because then they wanted to know, well if that's so, why did Moses, why did Moses give this bill of divorcement? And then Jesus explained that it was a concession that Moses made because of the hardness of their hearts. But he quickly added that such a concession was never originally intended by God. Verse 8. And then, then, very importantly, Jesus for all time to come, for as long as time stands, gave his will on this matter in verse 9. He said, whoever, that refers to all people in the church or out of the church, divorces, that is, obtains a divorce for any other reason other than fornication on the part of the other person in the marriage, and marries another, that is, keeps on committing adultery, commits adultery, present tense, keeps on committing adultery as long as they remain in that relationship. And whoever marries her, what her? 
any her, any put away woman, any put away woman whom someone else marries, that person who marries that put away woman commits adultery. Because if the woman's been put away for some reason other than her own fornication, there's adultery involved when she enters another marriage. And even if she has been put away as the guilty party, guilty of fornication, whoever marries her commits adultery. Why? Because the guilty party cannot remarry. So any put away woman, as Jesus discusses it, makes the person who marries her guilty of adultery. Now, while the Lord emphasizes the sin of adultery in this teaching, please keep in mind he does not dismiss the sin of divorce itself. Remember the question the Pharisees asked and the Lord answered in verse 8, Why then did Moses command to give a certain or certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning it was not so. And so the teaching of Matthew 19 harmonizes with that of Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And these passages harmonize with every other passage in the New Testament on the subject. And that shouldn't shock us, should it? Because the New Testament is consistent, obviously, and it does not contradict itself. Now there's one other passage that needs to be considered in this crucial matter, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11 particularly we'll look at. Here, Paul is the writer. And Paul writes in verses 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians 7, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, the context here indicates that divorce is what is under consideration here in both these verses. Depart in verse 10. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Is that separation or is that divorce? I believe the context shows it to be divorce, and I think the word that is used gives further credence to that. Because the word depart in verse 10, a wife is not to depart from her husband, is the very same word in the original that the Lord Jesus used in Matthew 19, 6, when he said, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man separate. By what? By divorcing. It's the very same word in the original in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, as in Matthew 19, verse 6. And so the original word, karizo, in the original is the word Jesus used clearly when he was talking about divorce in Matthew 19.6. Paul uses the same word here, which is translated depart in verse 10, and I believe the context and the use of the word shows it to be the divorce that's under consideration. Then he adds in verse 11, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now the fact that a woman is to, quote, remain unmarried indicates that divorce is under consideration here. Otherwise, how could she be considered to be unmarried? So that's another statement of Paul 
that indicates that divorce is under consideration. Now, in verse 11, he does use the word husband. Let her be reconciled to her husband, but the use of the word husband there is natural because Paul is saying, remain unmarried if the divorce occurs or be reconciled to the man who is now your husband. And incidentally, in the Greek, there is no specific word for husband. The context has to determine whether husband is under consideration or man in some other uh, connection. So the command given in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7 is clear. What is it? Do not divorce. And then in verse 11, Paul deals with what should be done if the command of verse 10 is violated. If the command of verse 10 is violated, what do you do? The parties are to be reconciled, if possible, or remain unmarried. They cannot remarry because the one scriptural ground for remarriage for the innocent party is not under consideration here in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. Now, should fornication be involved in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5.32 would apply to the situation, and that would allow the innocent party to put away the guilty and to remarry. But remember, the party guilty of fornication who is put away by the innocent party cannot scripturally marry. And so, what is the whole of New Testament teaching? The whole of New Testament teaching is divorce cannot be initiated for any reason other than for fornication, sexual immorality on the part of one of the marriage partners. Then, in that case, the innocent party may, doesn't have to, but may divorce the guilty party. The guilty party cannot remarry in that situation, but the innocent party may remarry with God's approval. And when there is no fornication involved, and when two people mutually agree to a divorce for any other reason, neither one is free to remarry. In fact, according to Scripture, both have sinned in willingly dissolving the marriage on grounds other than the scriptural ground given by Jesus. There is always sin involved in every divorce, either on the part of two people or on the part of one person, at least one person. And this is why one should never willingly participate in a divorce. God hates it. And if your spouse threatens divorce, do not be an agreeable party to it. Fight it. And many times you... You fight it to the conclusion, and there's nothing you can do about it in today's world. And if your life is threatened, etc., then remove yourself from a truly life-threatening situation by separating without divorcing. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine is a principle that applies there. We are to what? Love our neighbors as ourselves, which tells me I can love myself enough to get away from somebody who's trying to kill me or is hurting me. And so I have that right, scripturally, I believe. When a person respects God's will regarding the sanctity of marriage, I believe with all my heart God will bless that person. We live in a society today that is torn apart by divorce. Unscriptural marriages have affected the lives of many, many people. 
And while sin may increase, God's word has not changed. And I cannot change it to justify the sin. If I do so, I'll lose my own soul. And so will you. God's marriage law is clear. And all I can tell those who have violated, violated it to do is to repent. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says to these Corinthians, And such were, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Those to whom Paul wrote these words were Christians now who had repented of their sins. And their repentance involved a change of mind that led them to a reformation of life. And it led them to make restitution for their sin as far as possible. Who would contend that a drunkard may remain a drunkard? Or that a homosexual may continue to practice homosexuality after becoming a Christian. Or that a thief may continue stealing after becoming a Christian. Therefore, an adulterer or a fornicator cannot continue living in such a state after becoming a Christian. There's no question about the fact that the teaching of Jesus on marriage, divorce, and remarriage is restrictive teaching. Here's how the Lord's disciples responded to his teaching in Matthew 19. They knew it was restrictive. You know what they said? If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They understood how restrictive the teaching of Christ was. If that's the case, they said, it's better not to marry. And what was the response of Jesus? Jesus responded by telling them, as we mentioned earlier in the lesson, there are some who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And some in the world today may have to do the same thing in order to inherit the kingdom. Is that easy? No. Not easy at times to do so. But it is worth any sacrifice we must make in this life in order to reach heaven when this brief life is over. And so the Lord made clear in this and other passages his will on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Staying with the figure of marriage, the Bible speaks of being married to the Christ, a spiritual marriage, the greatest marriage ceremony that could ever occur is that ceremony in which a person is married to the Christ and added to his church, the kingdom of heaven. If you haven't undergone that ceremony, it's absolutely essential to your salvation. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess him to be the Christ and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins. You'll rise to walk in newness of life 
walking as it were with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, walking in his will and with the greatest hope that could ever reside in the heart of man, the hope of heaven. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do that tonight. If you need to come home to your first love as one who has sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the church, sinned in a public way, then you need to repent in that same way. Private sin should be taken care of privately. And for those who need no repentance, may we ever determine to respect every part of God's will, including his will, as we've discussed it tonight, on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, on church discipline, on whatever the subject may be, even when there are difficulties and challenges and heartbreak that are associated with the carrying out of that will, it is nonetheless God's will. And if we'll do it with hearts filled with compassion and do it as the Lord would have us do it, then he will bless us. As we stand to sing, if you need to respond, will you come?